It's a mean age. But it is going to be a beautiful future as long as we don't f*** it up. I'm Brian McWilliams, and this is Mean Age Daydream, where I bring you unfiltered comedy, criticism, philosophy, and politics with a Mean Age Daydream. Welcome, welcome to Mean Age Daydream, everybody. Uh, It's been a hell of a day. I'll tell you about that momentarily, but before I do, I want to welcome in our guest today, a uh, repetitive guest on the Lines of Liberty, but first time on Mean Age Daydream, Mr. John Ziegler. John, how are you doing? I'm okay, Brian. Sorry to hear about your rough day. Oh, well, we're all going to hear about it. We're all going to commiserate. But just to tell you guys more about John, if you're not familiar, so John is the host of the Death of Journalism podcast. Now, this is a, I guess, a, a continuation of with the benefit of hindsight, which is a podcast which studied the Sandusky stand, scandal of Penn State. I went to Penn State. The Lions of Liberty name is derived from the Nittany Lions. So uh, I am passionate about my Nittany Lions. And uh, we don't have to go deep into it, but John has been on John Odermatt's podcast many times breaking this down. I encourage everybody to check that out. Framingpaterno.com. You can find all the links there. But we're here today to talk about the uh, the death of journalism. Now, John, we'll get into that. But as you mentioned, I had an incident. I didn't think I was going to be able to record this podcast. And for regular listeners and watchers of the show, you'll recognize that I am now a fanhead man. I think it's probably distracting to John because I have a fan literally just circulating above my bald head because I'm in the bedroom of my rental house. Now, we moved into this house, a hellish move because we're renovating houses. Been a nightmare. We've got a toddler and a baby. The move, awful. So much stuff left behind. But I moved the stuff in. We still got some boxes on the floor. And yesterday, because my wife, you know, the, the water is disgusting here. We have a refrigerator with a filter. I put in a refrigerator line. Now the refrigerator line, you know, I, I think it's connected. John's already bored. Excellent. I <laughs> saw so the, 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 I put in the refrigerator line. It's connected for 24 hours. No leaks, no problem. Refrigerator is working. This morning at eight o'clock, I leave because I have to give a garage key to my contractors. Come back literally 30 minutes later. House is flooded. Water coming out the garage, out the front door. I walk in the house, three inches of water on the floor. And we deal with it. But here's the irony. Yesterday, I had emailed the water company to say, hey, switch over the water service. So they do not yet switch it over. I get an email from them after the water is turned off at 9 a.m. today that I need to provide a rental agreement so if they had only turned the water off at 8 o'clock a.m., my house would not have flooded. Is that the height of irony, or uh, am I just an asshole? <laughs> uh, that sucks. <laughs> but you said, though, you told me the cleanup went better than you expected, though. It did, yeah. The cleanup went all right. Let me make sure, actually, you know, just to make sure my uh, audio is coming through okay. Oh, no, sorry. Sorry. There we go. It should sound a lot better now. Apologies, everybody. I'm uh, dealing with an a as we say, uh, a jury rigged setup here or Jerry rigged. Yeah. The cleanup went better. We got a sump pump, ran out, got the pump. My wife came home, shoveled, you know, uh, got a big broom, got the water out the door, out the garage. Now it's just sopping up the stuff that's under the floorboard. So hopes and prayers that my cleanup goes well, but regardless, thank you, John, for joining me. I'm glad we were able to make this happen. I am an avid listener of the death of journalism and I uh, really appreciate your point of view. So let's dive in. Tell me, well, first, tell my audience a little bit more about your journalistic background. I mean, you are a long tenured member of the media. So let's go into that and then where you found yourself and why you wanted to start the podcast. Well, I'm, I may be long tenured, but um, I've had mostly uh, failures in my <laughs> career. I have about as I have about as diverse a media career of of anybody I know. I think that's a pretty fair assessment. I mean, I began in sports as an on-air television sportscaster in a couple of smaller markets. And then I went into talk radio. And uh, along the way, I got back into television. I did some political polling. I did some column writing. I've done documentary films. Um, 
I, I've traveled all over the country. I've lived almost everywhere east of the Mississippi, and then I've spent the last almost 20 years, actually 20 years now almost, uh, here in the Los Angeles area. I moved out here to be a radio talk show host on KFI in, in Los Angeles, but then left there after about four years and have gotten away from talk radio and only gotten back into that kind of medium and with podcasting. And as you've already referenced, um, I've done a couple different podcasts. I did a, a, a podcast called the individual one podcast during the Trump presidency. I'm a conservative who's anti-Trump. I'm probably the only one left in America that actually is a conservative who's anti-Trump and who never sold out my principles. That, that'll be, uh, I, I, I'm with you there. I'm with you there. So I, I, don't I, worry. I Okay, well, I'm glad there's two of us. But um, if I had a business card, I'd probably put that on my business card. The last conservative to to be anti-Trump and never sell it as principles. But um, and after uh, the Trump presidency, I, I did a podcast you referenced called um, "With the Benefit of Hindsight," and I did that with Liz Habib, who ironically at the time was a the television sportscaster at the Fox affiliate here in Los Angeles, and it's ironic because we met like 30 years prior as co-hosts of a newscast at an NBC affiliate in Steubenville, Ohio, Wheeling, West Virginia. And as you stated, that goes into the entire Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky scandal. It's an epic podcast. If you haven't heard about it or heard it, um, it is extraordinary in so many different ways. And it, for people who have given it a fair opportunity, it almost, with I think about a 95% success rate, blows people's minds and usually changes their perspective completely about what they think they know about one of the biggest stories of the decade, uh, which which exploded nationally in November 2011. And, um, and I now believe we have proven beyond any reasonable doubt that the entire story as told to us by the news media was bullcrap. Mm. And after we did with the benefit of hindsight, Liz and I were kind of figuring out what we wanted to do next. We started doing the death of journalism together, which was kind of in the same theme, but obviously much, much broader with regard to topics. It was news of the day, looking at the news through the prism of this very, very broken news media, thus the name, The Death of Journalism. And logistically and philosophically, Liz and I were having some problems during the first, I guess, 20 episodes or so. So uh, Liz decided, and we, I guess, both decided that it would be better off if I just did this alone, although Liz has come back on the, on the podcast as a guest. Um, and, um, and so we've now done 80 episodes of the death of journalism. And I think I, I would like to believe that each of them is compelling in their own way and, and, and unique too, because it's not just me looking at the news of the day. Oftentimes I'll tell stories about my very, very strange life and career. Um, our most recent episode, episode 80, I, I tell an extraordinary 45 minute story about my, role in the O.J. Simpson case and, and how I played a, a very significant part in why O.J. ended up going to prison in the Las Vegas heist case. It's just a remarkable story. But I even, you know, I've had so many strange stories in my career. I, I often refer to it as probably being in the top 10, maybe being in the top five of my personal and professional stories. But it's it's a doozy, and I, I hope people appreciate it. Um, and well, so... I did listen to, as I mentioned, I, I just heard your previous episode where you talked about how you were playing. You're an avid golfer and, uh, and I'm a golfer, but not uh, that good, but avid golfer. I watched the PGA tour and you said you played an amateur and uh, as you had many times and with a, you didn't name names, but a prominent, I guess, personality in the golf world's son who yeah. had a cheating incident. And I was listening to that story just amazed. I mean, I was shaking my head amazed at the the boldness of the kid. And by the way, I support your assessment that there's something with the generation that, well, I'll let yeah. you tell the uh, the story if you can. You know, briefly. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, I'm glad you appreciated the story. And, and frankly, I got, I've probably gotten more feedback on that story than anything else I've done recently, which is kind of weird what, what gets people to respond. Um, basically, the story is this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an old, fart now i'm 56 years old but you know i used to be a pretty good golfer i played in college at georgetown i played in a few national amateur events usga and rna 
uh, and won club championships and that kind of thing. But I still try to play in these national qualifier events, mainly just to keep my game in some semblance of shape because I don't get a chance to play much golf. I have two young kids and my wife works and uh, there's a whole lot of reasons why I hardly, I probably play less rounds of actual golf than anybody I play against at the top amateur level. I practice a lot, but I only have usually like two hour windows to, to get away. And that doesn't allow you to play you know 18 right, holes yeah. of real golf. And so anyway, long, long story short, um, I was playing in the U.S. Amateur Qualifier about a month ago, and I played with a young kid. And you know, I, without getting in all the details, I I withdrew in the second 18. It's a 36-hole qualifier. And I made it very clear I was likely going to withdraw in the second 18. And I thought you know, everything was going to be fine because I, I left after. The, he, he wanted me to leave for some reason, which I now believe i understand why he wanted me to leave <laughs> but I, my intention was to play in through the ninth hole with him and then give him his scorecard and let him fall back to the group behind us which was also a a twosome and unfortunately we were only a twosome you see normally these things are in threesomes and so no one is 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 writing out anyone else's scorecard in other words you know each each person is keeping a different person's score so there's inherently a, an obstacle to cheating right because right. yeah. you can't you can't make any like deals like okay i had a par on that hole and you give me a birdie on that hole you know what that kind of stuff but because we were we were only a twosome because someone had already withdrawn i, I realized this was going to be a problem but they still even at the top level and the u.s amateur is the, the most prestigious amateur <laughs> golf championship in the world this is a tournament won three times by Tiger Woods, twice by Jack Nicholas, Phil Mickelson, Arnold Palmer. I mean, virtually everybody who's anybody has won this tournament, and it's still the most prestigious amateur championship in the world. So this is a big deal. And um, and the guy, uh, the kid I'm playing with, a high school kid, young high school kid, who, as you mentioned, has a father who is, it's not an exaggeration to say, has a close connection to Tiger Woods and a very, very close connection to one of Tiger's best buddies fred couples and as a player himself and i think that played a role in what ended up happening here well i after the seventh hole of our second 18 uh i i had indicated i was withdrawing and and he said well why don't you just go ahead um i'll fall back now and wait for the group that is behind us to come up the hill onto the seventh green i said i was a little miffed but i said okay fine so here's your scorecard, and I put my initials under the seventh hole, which in my mind was I was signing off on those first seven scores that I had been keeping for him being accurate. And he was still in contention, theoretically, on a very, very, very difficult golf course. This is probably the most difficult golf course in the entire qualifying process for the U.S. Amateur. That's not an exaggeration. So the scores were high, and so therefore I knew, even though I think at the time he was – I think I said it was four over par at the time, somewhere in that range, four or five over par for the tournament. He was still in contention. And um, and so I gave him a scorecard and I was a little miffed that he wanted me to, you know, basically <laughs> move along and get a mm -hmm. I thought maybe he was pissed at me because he had just bogeyed the previous two holes and he was kind of falling out of contention. And so I, I thought, okay, fine. Um, and so I just went in by you know played by myself for the eighth and ninth holes told the officials at the clubhouse i was withdrawing told them i had given the scorecard to the to the kid i was playing with and everything was fine well i got home it's a two-hour drive back to, to where i live and i checked out the scores because i wanted to see how everyone else was doing i knew a few people in the field and i happened to notice that the kid i was playing with was still in contention to be one of the two qualifiers and i'm thinking Wow, that's really amazing because he had, when I left, he had just bogeyed the last two holes. He was leaking oil. The course was playing very difficult. I didn't think he was that great a player. I mean, I've been around enough to know who's a really great player and who's not. I mean, he's a young kid still. So I'm thinking, wow, how did this happen? So I go to click on his on his name where you can then check the score by the hole by hole score. And much to my shock, the scores are wrong. Um, on both the last two holes that I had been playing with him uh, on, which was number six and number seven, where he had, he had made bogeys on each of those two holes. And on the app, it, they were recorded as pars. And I'm thinking, this can't possibly be. This cannot possibly be that he 
just brazenly, blatantly cheated and changed the scores on his scorecard. Because that, you know, there's all different sorts of levels of cheating, right, in golf. And, and even at the highest level, I mean, even at the pro level, you'll see guys take bad drops or, you know, take a ruling that's kind of skeegy. But this is so far beyond a bad right. drop. I mean, and, this and is, he said he had a caddy too. It was like a family yeah, friend see, was helping caddy. He a, so, a, so somebody was caddy. complicit in this as well. Well, see, that's what I don't know. And I, and to this day, I'm, I may never find out what really happened here. I'd love to talk to the caddy because the caddy was an older gentleman. I don't say older, probably around my age, but he was, he was a guy who um, was a friend of the family, a, a, a someone who seems very reputable, seemed to be like very wealthy, by the way. Um, and, um, and he was doing it as a favor, I guess, to the, to the, to the kid's dad or whatever. He was a friend of the family. So he's, he's caddying for the kid. And I have no doubt whatsoever that this guy knew, uh, that he, that his, his player, the kid had made bogeys on, on number six and number seven. So anyway, I call the, the clubhouse. I, I, the, the, the official in charge calls me back. I explained what happened. And at this point, the kid is still in contention, to either get a spot or be an alternate or be in a playoff. And I'm trying to explain to the official, I'm telling you, he made bogey on those two holes. I'm positive of it. Well, at that point, it was, you know, basically he said, he said, they mm. apparently called, they called the kid who was driving home. He didn't even stick around, which I thought was interesting because he was still in yeah. contention for a playoff and, and he did not stick around which to me was a tell that there was something wrong here. Cause I can right, tell you this stick around to watch who's coming in. Right. If, if it ran it, we, we, we were the first finishers, but I can tell you that if I, if I finished 36 holes of qualifying in a U.S. amateur and my score had any chance at all of being in a playoff for anything, an alternate spot or whatever, I'm sticking around. I mean, unless oh, yeah. there's, there's gotta be something really important going on, but heck, that, that might be a generational thing. I don't know. But, the, but when they, called and asked him about my allegation. He completely lied and said, no, I made pars on those two holes. He, he basically concocted that he had made two putts that he had missed. And, um, and I'm, I'm thinking this can't be, this is, this is everything against everything that I've ever experienced or heard of or thought of in the game of golf. Um, especially from, you know, a, a top, this is a top amateur event, USGA, SCGA, organization uh from a kid this kid is well known not just because of his dad texas tech's head golf coach was following us around recruiting for a, a few holes and so this was just beyond stunning to me and i also thought okay well this is i was actually I'm a little bit fearful for the kid himself at first because i'm thinking the scga the southern california golf association is going to come down on him like a ton of bricks well and maybe ruin his entire career, his reputation. I mean, because if you, it gets known in the golf world that you're this brazen a cheater. I mean, you're basically done, at least in, in yeah. you know, in the olden days. That's the way it would be. I mean, I mean, Vijay Singh, non-golf fans probably don't know this. Vijay Singh got caught cheating a million years ago on a minor tour. And to this day, there are still people to talk about it <laughs> he's you know he's I, almost yeah, 60 you know, years I didn't old. know I know who BJ is I didn't even know that but and, wow and well okay. it's, it, it would happen it happened a bazillion years ago but I mean it was just one episode that was somewhat similar to this and um anyway the point of all this is it took forever for the SEGA it took weeks for the SEGA to finally act we had a conference call uh with the the top official and the guy who was the local official there, they sent me the scorecard. Now, this was, Brian, this was the funniest part of the whole thing. They sent me the scorecard because they wanted my evaluation of the actual scorecard. And when I got a picture of the scorecard, I'm like, oh, my God, I cannot believe. Not only is this kid this brazen, but he's this stupid. I mean, he had he had erased my numbers on number six and number seven, not even very well. But then he replaced this, the, and I had written in a six and a five on those two holes because they were both bogeys. And then he, he had written in, in his own handwriting, a five and a four. And the biggest problem was that on number seven, he erased my five, replaced it with a four, but he writes the four with the triangle at the top of the four. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, 
I don't write a four like that. And you can see it elsewhere in the scorecard as clear as day that I write a four with the right angles. And that was my favorite so- part. It, that was my favorite part, by the way, of listening to that story is that it's so just idiotic. Like if you're going to cheat, at least be clever about it. Try to emulate the letters. I mean, it's very, cause I did, I was thinking of like, I did the same thing. I did the right angle for it's a, right. such a distinctly different motion that that would be a red flag. This is a hundred percent a fraud these scores don't count and yet somehow you had to keep going well i i i I believe it's my guess because they stopped communicating with me because i i i I got rather snippy with the scga about their lack of action and i basically for lack of a better term i i threatened them because i had gone to a a a golf reporter who was interested in the story who's kind of specializes in these kinds of stories and and i basically said look if you guys don't do something, this is going to turn out way worse for the kid, way worse for the dad, way worse for everybody, because this has all the makings of a significant, it wasn't going to be a massive golf story, but I I firmly believe it would have made waves in the golf world, especially once the dad's identity uh, was revealed in this story. And so finally they did disqualify him. If you go to the, to the scoreboard. He's no longer listed as tied as an alternate. Uh, he's disqualified, but I don't know whether or not anything else happened. You know, to me, there ought to be a massive suspension. They told me, and I understand this, that, that disciplinary actions had to be confidential, blah, blah, blah. But I don't have any confidence based upon what I went through that, you know, anything else was done. And I have to say, maybe the most disappointing part of the story, Brian, I don't know if you agreed with it. Obviously you listen and do it on the podcast. I actually was expecting to get a call either the dad or from the kid being forced to call yeah. because the dad told him to, to apologize to me because I was put through a really uncomfortable situation. It was a pain in my ass. Plus, I felt like my own integrity was being questioned because I'm like, guys, right. I'm telling you, this, this is not what happened. And that ought to be enough, um, especially since the scorecard backs me up so obviously. And um, and that did not happen, and that, that has not happened. I don't expect it to happen. Although I have to say, the more I think about it, and I've talked to some other people within the golf world about this, I, I may try and get in touch with the dad because I, I would like to at least know um, – that the message was received by the kid. Um, I mean, uh, if, from a lot of different perspectives, but, um, and I don't know, maybe the dad is afraid because of his position in the golf community. I, maybe there's more vulnerability there. I, I don't know. My fear is that either the dad doesn't even know uh, or, um, you know, that this is all being portrayed as not a big deal. To me, it's a big deal. And my major reason for telling the story was I do think there's something broken in our society for this to happen in golf at this level, this brazenly, I just do not believe this is something that would have happened under the same circumstances in a previous generation. I don't believe it based upon, you know, having played tournament golf now for, uh, you know, over 40 years, I just don't believe it. And if it's happening in golf, then it's happening elsewhere in society. And I think we have a problem. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I was shocked that you didn't hear. I thought, if nothing else, from the father, especially if he's a prominent person in the golf media or golf world, I should say. That's what I thought about more than anything. If this is a teen, okay, you have that instinct to cheat, right? You want to get ahead. You want to be a player. You want to get in the tournament. But especially if your father's well-known, what happens if you had found out, especially so brazenly, and to not have that self-awareness is astounding. And to think about the implications of that, the honor lost for your family, the uh, just the act of disrespecting the game. And like you said, golf is a game of respect. You're, you have to trust people implicitly to keep their score because you can't keep your eye on them all the time, you know? So, right. yeah, I was shocked, John. I, I, I'd be curious to see if you hear back. I was astounded the father did not reach out well, to do you. you. Do you think I should but, try? Do you think I should try to track? Do you think I should try to track down the dad? I think, yeah, honestly, I think so. Yeah, I can. I can. I, I think I can do it fairly easily. I, I. I mean, I know. I know what country club these the the dad and the kid belong to. I. I mean, I know. Uh, you know one of the jobs the, the the dad has. I mean, is there are ways I think I can. 
I can get in touch. And I, I'm, I'm debating it because I don't want to, I, I honestly don't want to harm the kid worse than I, but I want to make sure he, he, he's learned a lesson. See, that's the part that right. I don't have any evidence that there's been any lesson here um, uh, or any punishment. And Well, how old's the father? I know we're getting so off topic now, but he's, how old's he, the well, father? He's, a, because he's, he's, a, he's actually not very old. Um, the kid right. is, like I said, a young high schooler. And in fact, we joked about that during the round um, about how young his dad was, that he had he his both his parents. But by, by the way, I, I didn't even mention this in the podcast. Both his parents are prominent athletes, not like mm. super prominent, but but they have had high success in athletics at very high levels of sports. So they're not household names, but they are they are both both his mom and his dad. And so now that I actually think about I don't even think about that, but that actually makes it even worse in my mind. <laughs> but Yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's, I mean, I worry that that's part of the problem though, is like the generation, it's this generation, but it's also the generation previous, right? It's a little bit of less accountability, letting things go, less attention to what their children are doing. And I think less willingness to stand up and tell their children what's right or wrong to punish them. And that's a problem. I mean, it's also, I've oh, theorized no, on this before. Hey, look, is it, yeah, good. As a as a dad of two young as a dad of two young daughters, I I confess I I there's no question that I'm way softer on my kids than than my parents were on me, and I mean I'm an older dad as opposed to a younger dad, so um I, you know I, I'm as I'm not as guilty as some other people, but I I agree that this is a problem, and I think there's a lot of reasons why it's happened. I mean I think the whole idea of being your kid's friend became very popular and um and i i think that was i mean it was well-intentioned i think largely mm-hmm. but it was also selfish and short-sighted and um and and i also this gets kind of deep i'm sure you didn't even expect to get into this but um maybe i'm way overthinking this but um i i think that we have had a sea change in our culture as to when the prime of life is. I, mm-hmm. I think when, when I was younger, I'm, as I said, I'm 56, you know, prime of life was supposed to be probably in your forties, fifties, sixties, or your golden years. Now it's when you're a child. And mm-hmm. I think that we, we as a society are doing everything we can to enhance the childhood experience, continue it as long as we can, because we know how much things suck. Once you become an adult. And I think part of that is being soft and easy on your kids because you want them to have fun. You want them to like you. You want to have great memories. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to ostracize anybody. I mean, that, that's just, yeah, that might be digging too deeply into this, but no, I don't I, think, I think so. A lot is going. Well, what's kind of interesting, and uh, hopefully I'm coming through clear. I don't know. Uh, you're, you're, you're breaking up a little bit on me, but it's still okay. And, God knows I just moved into this rental house, so it may be my internet. But I think you're also canceling this interesting in our current environment of we want to have people, we want to give children this opportunity to be kids, right? And and I've seen schools where, example, my little brother, uh, my my wife has a very younger brother. He went to a school in Venice, California, very hippie, as you know, living in LA, that literally did not have grades. And after a few years... He didn't know how to read. And they were saying, oh, it's a learning disability. No, they just never taught him to read. And they never tested him, so they didn't know. I mean, that's the environment we're living in. But at the same time, it's kind of funny, the juxtaposition of we're trying to let kids be kids, but at the same time, uh, you have this push to over, you know, inundate them with information that they probably are not ready for, right? From the left wing, like, you know, about sexuality, about gender transitions, So while I agree with you that we're giving kids kind of more leeway and, and you don't want to come down on them, we're also giving them way too much information than they need, both of which I blame the left for. <laughs> well, I, I understand where you're coming from. I mean, there's no question that the childhood experience, and, and I guess I'm using a broad definition of childhood here, the, 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 the definition, you know, the, the, the childhood experience has dramatically changed in the last mm-hmm. generation or two. I mean, dramatically 
And, you know, there's some positives of that. I'm, it's a, probably a heck of a lot more fun to be a kid today than it ever has been. And kids are, you know, in most cases are, in my view, spoiled as hell. I mean, heck, I mean, my financial situation, our financial situation is not as good, uh, you know, as as it was when I was my kid's age. And yet my kids' lives are way better than mine oh, yeah. was. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'm not sure how that works, but it's it's weird. I mean, they're they're frankly spoiled. Um, everyone is and, and I and we try really hard not to spoil our kids. I mean, especially here in the Los Angeles area, you get kids that are just insanely spoiled. And um I, I do think that there are ramifications for that that we probably haven't fully uh, understood or, or seen yet because, you know, it's still working its way through the system. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, one of the things I also think about too, well, we're getting so off topic. We're, we're going to come back to the death of journalism. I swear to God, guys, okay. in the last 30 right. minutes of the show. Right. Um, I do think about that. Yeah, they're spoiled, but it's also, I mean, in a way it's the access there. Things are cheaper, better, right? We're libertarians. We believe in capitalism. That is a, a benefit, Right. Mm-hmm. But it's also the advancement of technology. And I think about how much mm-hmm. children are now relying on technology. Parents are relying on technology. How much mm-hmm. time is spent lost uh, as a parent? I think about this a lot with me looking at my phone and not interacting with my child or my child. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, granted, my kids are much younger than yours, three and a half and 11 months. Very young. Mm-hmm. But still, mm-hmm. my kid, you know, I just move houses. It's a pain in the ass. I turn on the TV, go for it. I'm on my phone because I haven't been on the phone in a while. It's an addiction. And I wonder what mm-hmm. the impact that does have on children. And the spoilage, I mean, it's almost inevitable, right? Because they have such a, a cornucopia of content, mm-hmm. of cheap products and goods around them. I think it's almost impossible for them to not be spoiled, almost at any income level. I That's been my experience. As far as the phone, I mean, my kids give me all sorts of crap for being on my phone all the time. They don't. They don't understand that it's a huge part of what I'm doing for work. Um, they don't get that. And then of course there's also hypocrisy because if they hear a TikTok video that catches their ear, they're, <laughs> they're, they're on it like crack cocaine um, over my shoulder, which drives me crazy. Um, but look, I, there, there's all sorts of different challenges now that never existed before that, um, that I don't think we're handling very well. Uh, for a lot of different reasons. And, um, I, you know, frankly, I mean, I, I'm, I'm known as a pessimist, Brian, but I, I'm i amazed that society hasn't been collapsing more dramatically than it, than it already is. I mean, I, it, it's being pressured at so many different points and, mm. and so many different elements uh, are changing so dramatically. Uh, you know, maybe I... I I don't know. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm kind of amazed that we're, we're doing as well in some ways that we are because I, I keep waiting for the whole thing to collapse on itself. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about all of society. I mean, I mean, yeah. we can't even determine, we can't even determine what the hell a man or a woman is for God's sake. Um, you know, we're back to square one beyond square one when it comes to how we form the rules for society. I mean, the, there's, you know, we got the spoiled kid issue. We've got, a dramatic change in the nature of the relationship between men and women, especially vis-a-vis mm-hmm. ma- the marriage contract. I mean, the marriage contract has gone from in basically two or three generations being very much favoring the man to now very much favoring the woman mm-hmm. uh, you've got uh, and taking it out of marriage. I, I think that there's, you know, based upon what I, I see on TikTok and other places, I mean, there's a war going on. Uh, you know, because social media has completely changed the mating situation. Um, I'm I'm amazed anyone's getting married or having kids anymore. I mean, I, I know. Well, so I th- many- and, and there's a. I mean, you saw. I think uh, Mia Khalifa, who not not that I would believe a porn star uh, as far as her opinion on marriage, but she recently came out talking about how marriage was the worst thing in the world and coming out against it. And that went viral. But so this might be an interesting segue into the death of journalism though, because for a long time, journalism fairly or unfairly was joined, was uh, viewed as where we would go for expert opinions. And the expert class has obviously been eroded over COVID rightly. So, but also I think for, um, people to find something of a communal agreement. 
And I think that we've seen over the last few years that that's fallen apart. So what's your opinion on the death of journalism? Do you think that this polarization is inevitable, always had to happen because of the money system? I mean, I'm, I'm curious to hear you kind of break this out because while the podcast is called The Death of Journalism and you do talk about it, the core issue of it, I think, is hinted at. But I'd like to hear your opinion on what really uh, created this. Well, I have talked on the death of journalism before about something that I wrote about in a book that I wrote that nobody bought um, called The Death of Free Speech, ironically enough. Um, even though the book was about free speech, it the, the subtitle and much of the book dealt with this issue of media fragmentation. And I have to say, um, you know, I've made a lot of good predictions in my, my career. I made some bad predictions in my career, but I think my prediction rate is way, way above average and might be about as good as anybody I, I know of. But I think my best prediction ever was was in that 2005 book, The Death of Free Speech, because the entire premise of the book was, and that was, remember, this is 2005. I wrote it mostly 2004. So this is this is when cable television has basically really solidified its hold on the mm-hmm. uh, certainly on the news media, but also on the cultural landscape. But we didn't have, you know, the internet hadn't completely exploded yet. We certainly didn't have streaming services. There wasn't Netflix or Apple TV and all that. So, so we were the fragmentation. You know, I didn't even realize at the time was really only beginning. But what was happening at that moment with the fragmentation was that the business model for the the news media and and for media companies in general was starting to break. Apparently, I just did. I just break up on you there. So yeah, a little bit, but you're you're still coming through. Go ahead. You're you're still on coming my end, through. Yeah, the, the feed stopped. Okay, all right. So I'll, I'll pick that up. So um, if you think about the audience as a pie, right? The American pie. Uh, back in the the golden era of media, you, you had a very few uh, elements that were taking pieces of that pie. You've got the three major television stations and every community had its own newspaper. And nationally, the New York Times and the Washington Post had uh, more influence. And then for a while, USA Today had a national influence on, on news media. And then you had radio stations. And basically, if you owned a TV station, a radio station, or a newspaper, it was a license to print money because the, the pie wasn't being splintered nearly that much. So everyone got a big piece of pie. There was plenty of pie to go around. And then as these outlets expanded and cable television exploded, and then the internet happened in a, in a big way, and you got a billion different websites, and then eventually that gets into Twitter. I mean, Twitter basically, you know, went from having one Matt Drudge with the Drudge Report to having 10,000 Matt Drudges or maybe right. more with uh, people who are basically doing the exact same thing that Matt Drudge what was doing with the Drudge Report. And so now everything is getting splintered and splintered into smaller and smaller pieces. And so I like to describe the history of broadcasting as it started as broadcasting. It then went to narrow casting. Then it went to cult casting. And now we're in the era of narrow cult casting where you, what you can do, and we've seen this like with Newsmax or One American News, where you don't need a, a large audience in comparison to the overall country. You just need a very loyal audience, a rabid audience that's going to consume you on a consistent basis and be so enthusiastic about it that they will you know, buy the products of the people right. that are advertising on, on your outlet. So- we now live in a world where Newsmax, which has an, you know, percentage wise, a very small percentage of even the conservative television audience can be very successful because it doesn't cost them that much money. And they have a rabid cult Trump following. And, and then on the other end, these networks that used to broadcast ABC, NBC, CBS, and even CNN, and MSNBC and, and Fox, 
have all now had their audiences and their share of the pie shrink to the point where they're, they're, it's very difficult for them to make a profit or at least the profit that they their parent companies are used to. And this has created an enormous amount of pressure to make sure that content is ratings friendly. And right. instead, you, it used to be back in the, the era where you had a license to print money. The, look, I'm, I'm not someone that looks at the past with rose colored glasses. There were always problems. Okay. But, but in general, it's not hyperbole to say that it used to be that the news department in, at an outlet or an organization could do almost anything they wanted to. They didn't worry about whether or not it was going to be popular. By the way, they didn't have overnight television ratings, so they didn't even know whether or not what they were doing was popular. They just did what they thought was important or mm-hmm. you know, it was a good story. And by the way, they had the resources to send multiple reporters out investigating a story that may never see the light of day. I mean, it was not unusual to have somebody in a news department, especially in the major newspapers, to work on a story for months and then come back and go, yeah, we just, there was no real story here. We, we, we couldn't come up with anything. And then they don't, not only don't get fired, they go, okay, well, good job. Then find something else you're going to do for the next couple of months. I mean, yeah. that was the normal, that was the mo- normal modus operandi. Today, today, it's the exact opposite where you have to, you, you go and chase traffic on the internet all day long Mm -hmm. you cannot possibly spend a dime on anything that's not going to be a sure bet and stories that are unpopular even if they're important even if they're amazing stories like for instance the penn state joe jerry Mm -hmm. sandusky contrarian view i mean the, the the real story as i've documented and with the benefit of hindsight is an amazing story and we've had numerous situations where mainstream outlets have put their toe in that story and have convinced themselves that they're going to tell that story. But inevitably, they all realize the same thing. Wow, this is an amazing story. It's true. It's important. But it's not worth our risk because, right. because one, there's no audience for it. We're going to get attacked for it. It's just not worth it. In, an, in the old media environment, this story would have been told properly years ago because somebody would have said, you know what? I don't care what kind of criticism we're going to get. Let's do it. It's an amazing story. That's what we're here for. We're here to do journalism, and the media got this one wrong, so let's try to right the wrong. That doesn't well, happen now. And instead, well, well, let me ask you. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Right. So no. So I I think you just you actually were going to go into what I was going to say. I would say, and I, I've worked in public relations for about 20 years. Armin. <laughs> so I've seen the change in media. I've seen the way you have to pitch them. I've seen the alterations in being able to pitch news stories, as you said, things that are mm-hmm. interesting, things that are newsworthy, and you have a gut after doing this for so long. You say this is a hit, and you throw it out there, and nobody gives a shit because. Mm-hmm. Everybody's been downsized. Everybody's doing too many uh, different different angles. But predominantly, to your point, they focus on what's clickworthy. Now, to circle back to politics, I definitely think, and I've seen the change since the Trump uh, presidency. Now, the the downsizing of staffs had already been happening. That just is a, a part of the model, right? But do you think it's been accelerated in the death of media because? People now have seen the acceleration of the media. The, the left-wing bias is exposed. And now these online sources have become so much more palatable, so much more interesting, so much more trustworthy than the news media. And is that leading to the downfall? Well, there's something to that. I think there's a symbiotic relationship between the death of journalism and the emergence of Donald Trump and then Donald Trump and the further death of journalism. He is His presence has exacerbated and accelerated all the things that were happening before him. And, you know, I, I'm somebody who I, I hate Trump, but I do think he has some level of genius. I, I've never been sure how much of it is conscience, conscious and how much of it is luck. 
but he he is a savant of sorts when it comes to the media. And I think he understood that the right-wing media in 2015 was ripe for hostile takeover. I think mm-hmm. he, he saw the weaknesses. He saw the vulnerability. He saw that the business models were breaking and that he was going to provide the right-wing media with something they desperately needed, content and ratings and something new and exciting. And I think it worked out even better than he ever imagined. I don't think he he realized that the mainstream news media would be so desperate as to also hype the hell out of Trump in, in 2015, mm-hmm. making it very easy for him to win the nomination. And then once Trump wins, there is a forever split now in the media. I mean, people, I think, probably forget that, yes, there was CNN and MSNBC and Fox, but occasionally they would all report basically the same way on right. stories, especially that, that were not overtly political. Today, you watch those three networks, and it's like you're you're in completely different worlds, completely different oh, yeah. worlds. And, it, and it's largely because of Trump, and Trump has created on the right, I believe, a mythology about what is real and true that has now made it almost impossible to defeat him. Because mm. because it's it, it's he is he is we're now so steeped in conspiracy theories and the, every conspiracy theory that you buy makes it easier to buy the next one mm-hmm. and um and and he is again I can never tell for sure what's on purpose and what's by luck but he has created an a media environment where the left wing media is completely neutralized because no one on the right believes a goddamn thing the left-wing media says, especially about Trump, and he has co-opted the right-wing media because everyone in the right-wing media is terrified of attacking him because you'll piss off your best customers. So what, yeah, what which, ends up Which happening? we saw, by the way, in that Tucker Carlson-hosted uh, symposium. I don't know what you'd call it. He did a Q&A with uh, several right. of the Republican candidates. Right. No one attacked Trump. I was no. shocked. I mean, honestly, I was blown away that nobody took you, that opportunity. Why were you shocked? Why were you shocked? I, I just... I, I literally thought this is the perfect opportunity to go after the man. And I know, no. I know you're laughing. I know you were right, John, you were right in that nobody has the balls to do it because they are, they're scared of uh, antagonizing the base. But still, I mean, it, I just was amazed that nobody even took a little wait, pot wait, shot. Wait till you see, wait till you see the Republican debate next week without Trump there. When mm. everyone gets asked about the Trump indictments and other than Chris Christie, it may be Asa Hutchinson, uh, Hutchinson if he's there, Everyone else is going to basically sound like a Trump campaign surrogate because yeah. they all know they all know that in order to be eligible to win the nomination, you have to buy into this mythology uh, uh, that Trump has created and Trump media has amplified. And a huge part of that mythology is that the 2020 election was at best not right and at worst completely rigged and fixed and stolen. None of which is true, but that's the world we now live in. Well, let me ask you this. So go, getting back to the overall concept of death of journalism, and I'll have to have you back on to dive into this more deeply because you know, we, we went off on all, all sorts of different tangents, but, and hopefully I'm in a, a better uh, situation when we talk next time, but is there any hope for the news media that you see, or is it just going to continuously spiral downward? Boy, I mean, since you listen to my podcast, you know that um, I have this battle between being perceived as a pessimist and thinking of myself as an optimist, because I actually think of myself as a delusional optimist at times, because that's the only time I'm ever wrong is when I'm <laughs> optimistic. I mean, if I'm if I if someone says to me, John, you're being too pessimistic, I go, thank you for confirming that I'm probably right about this, because that's <laughs> that's the way things work out. And um, I would say that. um I've, I've thought for many years that the only way we can possibly save journalism is for there to be an economic catastrophe within the media and get rid of a lot of this fragmentation. Um, I, I don't want that because that would be obviously very, very painful. Um, and so, you know, because this, this, this began with economics, to me, it has to end or be fixed with economics. The economics of this have to somehow get realigned something close to what they used to be. Uh, on a more practical basis, I have, I, 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 
I, I'm a little hesitant because I'm not sure what I'm really allowed or should be saying about this, but I'm going to give you a little tease. Um, okay. I, I think that I think I think in a, in a few weeks or maybe a couple of months from now, you may be going back to this clip and 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 going, "Aha! What was John talking about here?" Um, I think that there is a chance that CNN is about to do some really interesting things that hmm. could theoretically save journalism. See, I, I would have thought that. And I, from the previous uh, head of CNN, who now has been let go, he was trying to bring it back to center. Chris Lick. Right. Chris right. Lick. Thank you. Right. Um, but it didn't seem to work. And CNN seems to have gone back to being very left. They have now been uh, just mm-hmm. campaigning for the, the climate nonstop on their Twitter feed and in many reports. Mm-hmm. So it seems like they've embraced leftward once again. So I'm very interested to see. And I know you've got inside knowledge, but I, I mean, I, I hope you're right. Look, CNN I, used to I, be where I, I would I, go I, for middle of the road reporting, right? I mean, that's where I, I would I go. I trust be, them I, the most. I could be wrong. I'm just telling you that based upon what I'm hearing, I might be right. <laughs> well, then, we've got a deep philosophical statement from John Ziegler. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Interesting. <laughs> interesting, if true. All right. Well, John, um, let's talk uh, just a, a couple more minutes then. I hope you're right about CNN. But... We're talking about politicization. We're talking about like the BBC, CNN to the world. The BBC have lost their their position as the arbiters of centric truth. And I would argue that also Reuters and AP, and I've seen this firsthand since Donald Trump in the way that articles are written. And for example, the Associated Press used to report on presidential matters in a de facto way of this happened, the president said this thing. But now there's a lot of, adverbs in there there's a lot of descriptors in there um i find the same thing with cnn and the bbc and and all these other journalistic outlets so you're saying cna cnn may be salvaged is there any hope for the other ones and where should people go and i actually tweeted you at this you did a q a where do you go when you want to know the truth and where should my audience go well, I get this question a lot, and I always say uh, you got to use multiple sources. I wouldn't use MSNBC, um, but, but I mean, I, I still think CNN is is worth listening to because you will at least hear the semi-rational, left-leaning, um, not always rational, but sometimes rational, left-leaning um, view of things. So in my in my diet, there's CNN, there's Fox News Channel. There's um, Daily Wire, um, and then um, you know, and then and then Twitter. I use a lot, or X, whatever you call it now. I, I use a lot from from people that I at least have some semblance of trust in. You know, what are they saying? What are they linking to? And so, um, but but I, you know, this I've been doing this for forty years, about or almost forty years. I, I believe that if I have an expertise. Uh, it's in discerning what's bullshit and what's not. And, and so you got to, you have to train yourself to be able to, to, to know, okay, what's the self-interest, what makes sense, use your gut instinct, use your common sense. And, um, and, and also go by, you know, the track record of the reporter or the outlet. Um, And, but if it's about Donald Trump, you know, I'll tell you, this might be a weird way to answer your story. I hate the Hunter Biden story. Because I have no trust in anybody on the Hunter Biden story. Mm. I mean, I don't trust the left. I don't trust the right. The uh, story is murky. I, my sense is that it's a scandal, but I don't think it's as bad as the right wing media tries to pretend that it is, especially since he's not president. He's the son of, a, of the vice president when when these allegations took place. But the, the reason I mention it is because it, it, it's a classic example of a story where nobody is a trustworthy narrator. Nobody. Yeah. On Trump, at least, at, on, in my view, on Trump, you can find like former Trump aides, like Bill Barr, to me, is a trustworthy narrator on Donald Trump. Okay. I, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't inherently 
accept everything Bill Barr says. But to me, I start with Bill Barr on anything Trump related. And I look, I listen to what he says and I, okay, that makes sense or that doesn't make sense or I disagree here or there, whatever. There's nobody that fits that mold on the Hunter Biden story. Yeah. Uh, because there's yeah. nobody on, there's no, there's nobody on the left. There's nobody on the left that's going to call out and go, this is, this is bull crap. This is wrong. This is what really happened here. This was a scandal. Nobody's going to do that. And so um, I think you have to look at a, a, a conglomeration of, of outlets and use your common sense. That would be my short answer. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the old, I think one of the journalistic standards used to be to ask who benefits in any story. Nobody seems to ask that anymore. But yeah, I, I agree. I don't think there's anywhere you can really go anymore that can give you a straight answer. Um, I will end by the, the way, Brian, uh, by, by, by the way, by the way, Brian, to me, it, it's not just bias. I mean, I don't talk that much about bias on the death of journalism. Yeah. To me, to me, it's uh, the incentive structures are all wrong. And also, it's important to point out, most of the people in the media, the in, in the, I'm talking about big media outlets, are stupid people. They are oh, I dumb. agree completely. They are just they are just <laughs> dumb people, and they now have fewer resources to get their job done than they've ever had before, and less time to get it done than before. So when you take dumb people who really only care about keeping their place in a club. Never, ever forget that the mm -hmm. elite mainstream news media is a club and you do not want to be kicked out of the club because the club is very cushy. It's, it's like high school. It's basically high school with the cool kids. Okay. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be kicked out of the cool kids table. All right. And I, I've had, I've had lunch at the cool kids table. Um, and so I know what this is about. And I've never. And by the way, John, that. I'm amazed how many times you've they tried to kick you out of the cool kids club. I've heard you talk about your firings many times, and yet oh, you no, survive. No, no, I've never <laughs> been in the cool kids club. I'm saying, I'm, I'm saying, I was invited to lunch a few times, and <laughs> okay. and and so I understand the way I'm, I understand the way the game works. But I've never wanted to be part of the club. I always knew I could never be part of the club, uh, but I know a lot of the club members, and I'm telling you that is so. When you take these dumb people who want to remain in the cool kids club and you give them fewer resources and less time mm -hmm. to do their jobs and you give them distorted, perverse incentives, guess what's going to happen? Really bad reporting because human beings are bad reporters as it is. I mean, that's the entire essence of the whisper down the lane game. You just play whisper down the lane with your friends one time and you'll realize which, how, what horrendous reporters homo sapiens tend to be. And, and so, you know, we, we've picked the people to give us the news that are, are chosen for, for reasons that have nothing to do with news reporting. Mostly that has a lot to do with looks and, and mm -hmm. celebrity and luck and, and playing the game, uh, the political game behind the scenes. I mean, it's, it's, so it's a completely broken situation, which again is partially why we call the podcast, the death of journalism. Well, it's funny to think about, I, I was just, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how, you know, the researchers do so much behind the scenes, like the anchors really do anything. There are certain investigative journalists who do their own reporting. They do the, the research they do. They follow the stories. Some people do that. But there's so much emphasis behind the scenes on the support staff, which I'm sure have been eroded. And yet, ironically, is there a, <laughs> a spider just crawled across your camera? Uh, ironically... I've ju I just thought of a juxtaposition between the education system here in LA, especially where they keep adding on, in, you know, sub administrators and all this other staff below teachers. And yet the uh, education system is pure trash. The journalistic system seems to be pure trash. If they just swapped those two initiatives, maybe they'd have more success. Well, I mean, I think that what it caught me out of what you just said there was, you know, the idea that these stars in the mainstream news media, they never actually do any of their own reporting. Um, right. I, I take, I'll go back to the, I'll go back to the Penn state Joe Paterno Sandusky case. I, I never made a damn dime. I lost a lot of money covering that story for over 10 years and then putting together with the benefit of hindsight podcast. I actually went to the homes of the people involved and spoke to the people involved and from California on my own dime. And when you actually go to places and speak to people in person and, and do so with an open mind and ask the right questions, it's remarkable what you can find out, but no, no, there's not one major 
anchor or reporter national level who even you know they might have made a, a quick trip to state college but all they mm-hmm. did was a stand-up or a or an interview there they never spoke to anybody because they never felt like they needed to because they thought they already knew the story and, and nobody wanted to rock the boat or or go outside of the herd on that because you go outside of the media herd you're going to get run over by the rest of the herd and you're going to get kicked right. out of the club and so um i i, I knew a lot about how broken the news media was before Penn State, Paterno, Sandusky. But my God, if there's if there's one thing, I mean, it's my favorite episode of of uh, with the benefit of hindsight is this is the episode that Liz Abib and I do about the news media and all the different stories of just abject incompetence and corruption throughout the entire media industrial complex when it came to their reporting on this story or their lack of reporting on this story and their unwillingness to fix the wrong that they created. Mm. And it, and it's, and it really, to me, it goes all, it goes back to perverse incentives. I'm a big believer as a libertarian. If you give people freedom, but you provide the right incentives, things will tend to work out, you know, right incentives and the right disincentives. Well, all the incentives and disincentives when it comes to the major media are completely wrong and completely perverse and completely broken, yeah. especially on a story like Penn State, Paterno, Sandusky, but on others. Like, we see it all the time now. I mean, almost every story on race gets completely butchered because the incentive structure is all wrong. Uh, and, 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 and I think you see it in other sex abuse cases as well, because everyone is so terrified uh, of, of even being perceived as coming down in favor of someone who was a sex abuser or being against someone who's perceived as a victim. That, and that's the quickest way to lose your job, quickest way to get kicked out of the club. So no one will do it. And so they'd rather just go forward with obviously BS narratives. Like, I mean, what almost happened to Brett Kavanaugh was unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, uh, I mean, that was outrageous and comprehend. There's no chance that Blasey Ford's story was e- even remotely true. And it almost knocked out a Supreme court justice, uh, you know, at the very last second. And, and, and if it, I got to give Donald Trump credit for that, if it wasn't for Donald Trump, it would have, but I mean, that's just one of many, many examples. Well, I think that's where, just to kind of sum this interview up, uh, I think that's where the bias does come into play, though, is what the media decides to push back against, what they decide to give credence. And you've talked about this before. It's not just what's reported. It's what's amplified. And the amplification of the Brett Kavanaugh allegations, the amplification of some of these you know, race stories, that's what really drives it home. And the fact that the media is complicit, I mean, Hunter Biden, even though the Hunter Biden scandal as far as uh, involvement in Burisma with Joe Biden, the laptop, the amplification of the narrative that that was Russian disinformation, which is total nonsense. That's really what the killer is. And that's where the bias really shows itself more than any, I think any other example. Yeah. For the record, my, my, my phrase is it's not what gets reported anymore. It's what gets repeated that matters. And, that gives that gives the news media an incredible amount of leeway and power because they can always say, well, we reported this thing one time at the bottom of our website, uh, you know, or for 15 seconds on a 24 hour news station. Um, and so therefore you can't claim we didn't report it. Well, no, it's what gets repeated that matters. And we saw it. Again, going back to Penn State, Paterno, Sandusky. I mean, that was repeated and repeated and mm-hmm. repeated and repeated to the point where no one even bothered to question the narrative, which turned out, in my view, view of many other people now, to be completely and totally wrong. And so um, you know, that real that definitely is bias. I mean, look what's happening right now with uh, and I, and I, I want to make clear, I don't blame Joe Biden for what happened in Maui. But if you compare right. the media coverage of What's uh, how soft they're going on on Biden's reaction to this and compare it to what they did to George Bush with Katrina. My God. I mean, my God, if you lived through that, I mean, they I mean, that was I mean, night and day difference. Yeah. And it's all because, you know, Bush is a Republican and Biden's a Democrat. It's obvious. Yeah. And Biden he literally in, you're refusing to answer questions about it, just walking away. And it's a different experience. But 
John, I, uh, I'm going to wrap this up. We, uh, we could talk a lot more, but I've got more work to do cleaning up this water before my family gets home. Uh, and again, I apologize for my fan head here if you're watching the video and uh, this impromptu setup here, but I appreciate your time. We'll definitely talk again. Uh, John, you can be found at framingpaterno.com. You can be uh, found at Zygmunt Freud on Twitter, right? Yeah. Remembering that correctly? And yeah, of Zygmunt course, Freud you can also... Yeah. Z- and also the death of journalism podcast yeah the death of journalism podcast and my twitter feed zygmunt freud are probably the two best places to ke- keep up with what i'm doing on a daily basis there we have it thank you so much for joining me i'm glad we were able to uh to make this happen and we will talk again soon and to everybody else out there thank you for listening from me brian mcwilliams from the lines of liberty from john ziegler uh keep those electric eyes on me And keep that ray gun to my head.